0: My name is Rowan, one of the pastors here at Auckland AV and Uni Church. It's so great that you can come together tonight as we hear what God has to say through His Word. Uh, We're in the habit here at Uni Church of of working through uh, books of the Bible to see what God says in their context Uh, because really you don't want to hear what's going on in some crazy preacher up the front's head. Uh, I want to hear what God's got to say, and that's where we find what God has to say is in His Word. Uh, And so if if you're new here, I want to add my welcome to Dave's. Great to see you. If you're not here, if you're not new here, um, welcome as well. It's great to get together. Why don't we pray as we've heard God's Word read. Let's pray. Lord God, tonight as we have heard what you've been doing in history, as we've seen this snapshot of what you've done with your people, as we've heard the story through the book of Exodus and how you've been bringing your people out, we ask that we would see more tonight of who you are, what you are like. And we go away having been changed in our thinking about you, And that we might see the way, Lord, that you have provided hope and salvation, and that might change our lives forever. We pray by your Spirit this night, as we look at your Word, you would shape us and mould us to see you as you really are. Amen. My first degree, uh, before I studied theology, was a degree in visual communication, which was graphic design, web publishing and photography. Uh, something I, I love about photography. I've always loved photography. Um, you know, it's this great thing. You know, if you can draw and illustrate, right, you become an illustrator or, or, or a painter. You can actually do great stuff. Um, uh, if you can't do great stuff, you just take photos of a God who can, right? And, and it looks really cool when you take landscape photography. And that's, that's part of the reason why I love photography. Uh, it was also because you just get to capture part of the world around us. But as a photographer, you get to capture it in a way to show a certain view to show a certain perspective and and to get certain things in focus. And what I love about photography is that you can do kind of some crazy stuff Uh, with a really long lens and standing a long way back. You can make two objects, one that's a long way away and like distant, and something that's quite short look like they're almost together, like, say, this picture here. Now, what you're seeing is a giant cup and ant, right? No, you're not. You're seeing a helicopter in the distance, but they've so lined it up so that they kind of look like they're in the right perspective there. You, you get a lens from a distance and you can see how perspective brings them closer. And the other thing you can do is um, use depth of field to focus and be able to see certain things. And uh, So for instance, um, you can make one part of an image right in the foreground so clear that you miss everything else. Or you can focus on something that's all the way back with a shallow depth of field and miss what's in the foreground. Sometimes, I think in life, we're a little bit like this. We focus on the things in front of us. We get sidetracked by the things right in front of us that we miss the bigger picture. Now, let me show you what happens with a shallow depth of field. Say there's this fence, right? You're standing there and you're like, what's, what's this image about? It's just a, it's a, it's a fence, right? It's, it's kind of some grid. You're like, oh yeah, that's, that's good. You don't really know what's going on. What's right in front of you is there. But if you were to change your focus with a shallow depth of field, this is what happens. suddenly you get a bit of perspective and you see there's a whole world beyond the fence. There's a whole world that now the fence is kind of gone and then when you change your focus coming back, suddenly the fence blocks out what's happening. There's no tricks kind of happening, That's just how it works with focusing. And in life, we often have that fence so in front of us with the, the situations that are going on that we miss the big picture. The here and now consumes us. Do you ever find that? doesn't matter what's happened in the past, what I'm looking at right now begins to Take over and consume me. Everything that's happening in the future—it's way too far ahead to, to, to think about it. And what I want to show you today is the importance of perspective and focus. That there's a bigger picture view in life, and the events of Exodus will show us that just focusing on what's in front of you does not work well, does not provide a good outcome, and that if you miss the focus of really, all of life and the depth of what God has to show us in His Word, then you'll miss what God has in plan for you. You'll miss the bigger picture of what God has an offer. So what we have here in Exodus uh, chapter 15 through to 17 is really three snapshots, three scenes of the life of Israel. If you haven't been with us so far, we've been following the story of these people who are descendants of a man called Abraham, who God had given a great promise to, Uh, he, he, these, these descendants had found themselves in Egypt and after been in slavery for 400 years there. Uh, and after that point that they've cried out to God and God rescued them from their slavery and said, yes, you will be my people and I will be your God. And then this week, we get to see them just after they've been rescued. So come with me to scene one at Murrah, chapter 15. If you're following along in your Bibles, it to be on the screen. Chapter 15, verse, um, verse 22. Then Moses led Israel on from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. They journeyed for three days in the wilderness without finding water. Then they came to Marah, but they could not drink the water at Marah because it was bitter. That's why it was named Marah. The people grumbled to Moses, what are we going to drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he threw it into the water, the water became drinkable. Here we have a little snapshot into the life of God's people after they've been rescued out of Egypt. In fact, so close was it to their rescue that it was only three days, it tells us. Three days for Israel to lose focus on who this God was and what He'd done. To start grumbling, complaining. For them to say, where's this water? (laughs) It's all that it took, these people, was three days to forget what had just happened, that a staff turned into a snake and ate up all the other magician's staffs that a river turned to blood, that the land was filled with frogs and the gnats then flies and devouring all the crops of the Egyptians, that there was death of the enemy's livestock, that then boils came over all the Egyptians, then hail from the sky wiped out anything that was left and the darkness covered the whole land. And then finally, every firstborn in every household who had not put the blood of a dead lamb over their door died. finally, Pharaoh said, I'll go, leave, go and worship your God. They left, but Pharaoh started chasing them. God led them to the Red Sea. They're in front of a sea. There's a sea there and behind them Pharaoh's army. And then God parts the water and takes Egypt through, so he takes the Israelites through this kind of on dry land, land to save them through this water and then brings the water crashing back down on their enemies, taking out the whole Egyptian army and they are worried about if they can have a little bit to drink. Have you not seen this God? Have you not seen what He's just done to bring you out of the promised land? The God who divided the sea, surely He can provide you with a drink. But their perspective is gone. Their focus is lacking. They can only see what's right in front of them. And I kind of understand it a bit, can't I? The desert's pretty hot, right? The wilderness that they're in, and that they want something to drink, and they're thinking, what's going on here? But they complain and grumble. They whinge. Like, whiny primary school kids. You know, I want something to drink. I don't, I, don't, well, I don't have any whiny primary school kids. Maybe my primary school kids that are ours, they're not always whiny. Um, but I, I can kind of understand the frustration at this point, if you get what I mean. You know, these kids, the, the, the Israel, are like kids at this point. We want to drink. What are you doing, God? And the scene, it's kind of, you just get frustrated at them. You ungrateful punk. What are you doing, Israel? You just got rescued from 400 years of slavery and you're complaining right now. Oh, I want a drink. Ungrateful brat. So Moses, God's chosen servant, cries out to his God, Yahweh. The God who had saved them, the God who'd been leading them, remember, with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And this is God's response through Moses to the people. Chapter 15, verse 25. He made a statute and an ordinance for them at Marah, and He tested them there. He said, If you will carefully obey the Lord your God, do what is right in His eyes, pay attention to His commands, keep all His statutes, I will not inflict any illnesses on you. I will not inflict any illness on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians. For I am Yahweh, Who heals you? God is testing them at this point. Did you see that on the screen? He tested them there. He's testing them to see how they will respond to the God who saved them. He's not saying, Look, if you do what I want, then I'll save you. No, He's just rescued them, remember. Just brought them out of this kind of slavery and into, well, no more oppression, into serving Him. And what He's doing is saying, if you trust me to save you, you need to trust me to lead you. You need to trust me in all of life. And so he, he tested them. And there's an important principle for us to understand here in this part of the Bible. God rescues people not so that they may be free to do whatever they want, but so we might be truly free. Free from serving ourselves or some other awful overlord and free to serve the God who loves us, who has provided that salvation. If you're willing to trust God has saved you, then why aren't you willing to trust Him to lead you? They were freed to be His people, but they didn't want to be His people. They wanted to whinge and complain and carry on. And God here is testing them to see whether they will respond to the salvation He has already offered. See, this salvation always entails a response of obedience. You need to obey to the one who saves you. If you've got nothing you can do, if you're sinking in an ocean, you're in in massive waves and you've got nothing to hold on to and someone comes out with a board and says, jump on. You're like, I trust you can save me but I'm not going to listen to you. (laughs) You're going to die. You needed saving. Well, this God has already saved His people and He wants them to respond by trusting Him. And then we get a little insight into the character of the God we meet on the pages of history. Despite Israel's grumbling, like a whiny kind of schoolboy, God delivers them. He provides a way to make the water drinkable. And get this, the whole section of chapter 15, 22 to the the end of that section, sees them end up in a place called Elam, where there were, we're told, 12 springs and 70 date palms. This is the God who is generous despite our whinging and complaining. This is a God who loves to bless His people. He's no harsh overlord like the Egyptian Pharaoh. He is a God who loves to bless. You must listen to Him. Well, that's scene one. It ends with a picture of God's blessing despite Israel's grumbling. Then we get to scene two that we heard Marielle read for us tonight. Um... And we start to see very similar things come up. It's an expanded story, but the same theme is there. In fact, there's a pattern that happens through this scene, scene two and scene three that we'll show you. Um, Israel grumble, they complain, they whinge. We don't like something, right? God provides, He provides a solution to, to their problem and then they enter this period of testing, So have a look for this this theme again to come up. We saw it, it just happened then. Let's go quickly through um, chapter 16 and get the picture of what's going on. Now, 16 verse 1. The entire Israelite community departed Elam and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month, after they had left the land of Egypt, so six weeks, the Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us out into the wilderness to make the whole assembly die of hunger. Six weeks. That's all that it took. Oh, I'm so hungry. I want to be dead. I would have been better off dead. I just get angry at them at this point. I'm like, shut up. Do you not see what God has done for you? You think you'd be better off dead than out of the slavery that you were were under for the last 400 years? What is wrong with you? They fail to trust in God's goodness. They don't trust Him. They fail to trust in God's promises to bring them to a better place, to make them His people. (laughs) They fail to trust in His appointed servant, Moses and Aaron. And they question Him, And what are you doing? We want meat. We want meat. You can kind of imagine them like some kind of Lord of the Flies. Everyone's read the book Lord of the Flies or seen the movie, right? Yeah, kill the pig, cut his throat, do him in. We want meat. That's what they're saying. You like you, ungrateful punk. What it does show us is that humanity have a propensity to view things in a very distorted way from a perspective that's very bent and not true. We focus on certain events in the past that are really quite hazy to our memories. They didn't have pots of meat. There's one part in Numbers where where Israel kind of talk about the time they were in Egypt and like, oh, we wish we had fish and and, and kind of produce and all the great things that we had back when we were in Egypt. You're like, you fools, you didn't have any of that. It was slavery, You were chained, whipped, beaten. This was not good. But, oh, I would have been better off back then and dying in Egypt. We have a propensity to blur out of focus the past and make it more rosy than it really was or is. We also underestimate how our own crookedness and brokenness affects our ability to perceive reality. At this point... They just don't follow this God. Look at six verse four, sorry, 16 verse four. So the pattern goes here, grumbling, and then God providing, right? Sixteen verse four. The Lord said to Moses, "I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. That is the way I'll test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. And verse 6, So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, This evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. God provides generously. Despite their whinging and complaining and moaning and carrying on, God provides food. From heaven. I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. You know, even though when you watch those like... um. TV shows where we have got contestants that win. At the very end, if they win the grand prize, like confetti comes down and dances in it. You know, that's my image here, bread. And they're like, whoa, right? This God has provided. But It doesn't quite happen like that. But, you know, this is the first image that pops into my head. This God is a generous God. He loves His people. You can't think He's, he's harsh, can you? He's so, so generous. And what you see about His generosity is He provides... Not what they want, but what they need. Uh, It's a thing that's called manna. manna. And literally, the word manna means, what is it? They're like, what is this stuff? It's a great name, it's called that. What is this stuff? What is it? And so, each morning they go and they collect it, and and God tells them just to collect enough for, for the number of people that you have in your house, and they go and they collect these amounts, and no one's hungry, everyone gets fed. And it would just come, every day, except Saturdays. Because on Saturdays, you had to not do anything. God's like, I want you to trust me to rest as a kind of foretaste of where I'm taking you into the promised land of rest and as a, as a reminder that I'm the God who created the world in six days. On the seventh day, which we're still in now, is my rest. I'm resting from my work of creation. I want you to remember that's where you're destined for. So I'm not going to provide any to come down so you can collect it on that day. In other words, you've got to trust me. Really, has there been enough evidence to trust in this God? So they go out, and it's exactly there, and, and they get it, but they go out on the Saturday to collect it as well. They don't obey God. Some of them, they want to gather more. You know, they want to be wise. They think, you know what I'll do? There's heaps on the ground. I'm going to get more than I need for today, so I'll get a whole heap, and they stockpile it. And in the morning, they're eating maggots because it doesn't last overnight. They don't trust this God. God tests them, but He shows that they are not a people who obey this God who saved them. 16 verse 6 that we just looked at. So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, this evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Really? Do you need another sign, Israel? Do you need another sign? But they seem to. They don't get it. There's a principle here at work too. The God of the universe is the God who provides. And in His provision, He provides what we need. So often we think through, what what I want? I would love this thing or that thing. But so often throughout Scripture, we see He provides what we need. So in Proverbs verse 30, the writer says we, need to be not, we don't want poverty nor riches, not too much nor too little. Matthew 6, Jesus teaches us how to pray. And He says, give us today our daily bread. Give us what we need what is that daily bread? (laughs) Or or, Paul, don't worry about what you eat or drink or what you're going to wear for God clothes the the field with such glory. He's in control. Or or, or 1 Timothy 6. Godlessness, sorry, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. It's not saying it is great gain. Uh, Great gain will give you Godliness and contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Um, as a side note, I just said that Paul said, don't worry about what you eat, drink or wear. It was actually Jesus, just to make sure we're listening. It was a test. It wasn't really. So God tests them. Will they trust me to provide enough? Will they trust me to keep it through that day that I've told them to rest? They don't. Here... Um, Hear God's response to Moses. Hear how Moses cops the flack for these people. 16 verse 27. God said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and instructions? And don't I know that phrase. (laughs) As I I, I, I remember, um, you know, just back this week, and I look over the interactions I've had with my kids. How long will you refuse to disobey me? Insert any of my kids' names right there. I've said that line. How long will you refuse? Do not lie. We do not lie in our house. You know not to do this. Why are you doing this? And I'm like, oh, you get so frustrated. You can imagine God at this point with these people that he's saved. What is wrong with you? Like, what bigger sign do you need? Do you see the pillar of cloud and fire? Do you see bread falling from the sky? Because I'm frustrated with my kids, I remember. And this is what I'm like. I'm someone that forgets what God has done. I'm someone that loses perspective. Yet God still provides for His grumbling people. Look at 1635. The Israelites, Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they reached the border of the land of Canaan. God provided for this grumbling, moaning, prepubescent people <laughs> For 40 years he rained bread from the sky, six days of the week. Then we get to scene three. And as you start to read chapter 17, 1 to 7, it sounds very familiar. You see this pattern again that, you know, God's people grumble for some reason. God provides, and there's a period of testing. We've seen it the whole way through. But there's a difference this time. There's something that changes, and it's meant to make you go, whoa. It's almost a complete repeat of 15. Uh, this time, though, they're dying with thirst. They're thirsty again, and they complain to Moses, give us a drink when we want something to drink. You're like, guys, have you not yet learned? <laughs> and then comes the period of testing, right? Verse 2, so the people complain to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me? Moses replied to them. Why are you testing the Lord? Did you see it? grumble provide a period of testing grumble who's testing who why are you complaining to me moses replied to them why are you testing the lord the previous two times it was yahweh testing his people now israel have degraded to such a point where they say you know what god i don't need to prove anything to you you prove yourself to me You prove to yourself to me that you are good enough for me, that you will actually provide for me. They demand proof of his faithfulness. (laughs) It's just an indication of how far their relationship with God has gone wrong at this point. And then you hear Moses cry out 17, verse 4. Moses cried out to the Lord, What should I do with these people? in a little while, they'll stone me. He's like, what do I do with them? And I think the whole point of this is for us to stand back and go, what is wrong with you, Israel? (laughs) Like, do you guys need your heads reset? What, What is going on? There's another little lesson here to learn on the way through as well, and that's this. Moses, God's appointed leader, tries to lead the people towards godliness, but they don't listen. Here's a tip for you. If you are in any kind of Christian leadership. Please recognize it's going to be hard. Human nature is so short-sighted and self-focused that we can't look beyond our noses quite often. And people turn. You're going to try and lead them to point to what God had said. You're going to try and lead them to the promises of God and the future He holds out, and they're going to want to stone you. To seek leadership is a great thing, but you have to be prepared. It is hard. Our own human nature of ourselves and that of those around us is to not focus on what God is showing us, is to not see things in His perspective. Well, Moses, despite the grumbling, moaning, complaining people of God, takes the elders and comes up to a rock where God stands there present in Horeb. He does what God says, strikes the rock, and in front of the elders, water comes out. Even despite Israel's testing God, God still provides. It's this amazing picture of what God is like. They're taking swings at God, like the whole time He's sustaining their hearts. It's like what we're like today. So many people are angry at God, shaking their fist at Him, going, You suck. I want nothing to do with you. And the whole time they are doing that, God keeps the blood flowing through their veins. He's a God who generously provides. Well, there's a number of things to focus on here in these three accounts in the book of Exodus. There's a number of lessons to learn from this part of Israel's life. I just want to focus on two for a moment. Number one, obedience and salvation. This section is all about how God's people respond to His salvation. Israel was saved from slavery to be God's people. That means they needed to be God's people. That's why he's testing them and molding them and shaping them to, to realize you need to trust the God who saved you. Salvation always entails a response of obedience. To presume on God's kindness, to accept his salvation and do whatever we want is a phenomenally offensive response. We must trust him. If he's been good enough to save us, He's good enough to lead us. The second thing that I want us to focus on in the passage here is the difference between groaning and grumbling. The difference between groaning and grumbling. Israel start this whole kind of series of events in slavery in Egypt, They're groaning in slavery, the start of Exodus tells us, and they cry out to God, and God hears their groaning, and He comes to help them. But it's not long before grumbling comes. There is only one proper activity for the people of God, and that is groaning, not grumbling. Crying out to God is a cry of faith, groaning to Him to say, oh, we are in this awful situation in life at this point, being oppressed, please save us, God. Please help us, God. It's a recognition that the world isn't how it should be and we can cry out to the God who is in control of all things and ask Him to help us. But grumbling says, God, you owe me. Why haven't you given me my food and water and Ferrari? When we grumble, we just, distrust God. We say to Him, I don't care. You owe me this. We start testing Him. And the warning of this passage is it's very, very dangerous to do. See, when Israel grumble, an 11-day journey in the wilderness to get to the, the promised land of Canaan takes them 40 years. Because grumbling always ends in disobedience and unbelief. They didn't trust God enough, and so they didn't enter the land. What starts out as seemingly innocent grumbling ends up with this massive disobedience that results in them not getting what God had rescued them from from Egypt to, to achieve, they don't get. Psalm 95 verse 8 says this, and it's a fantastic kind of recognition of this point. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day at Massa in the wilderness. He's talking about this exact incident, right? Where your fathers tested me. They tried me that they'd seen what I did. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation and said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. Do not grumble. Not against the God who has saved you, because it will end in disbelief and judgment as we go through hard times in life as we're tempted to focus on the right here and now and miss what's what's going on in the bigger picture we can groan we should groan we could cry out for help and deliverance from our god we ought to help one another as god's people walk alongside one another open the scriptures with one another encourage one another laugh with one another cry with one another groaning is entirely appropriate But do not grumble, lest your heart become hard. When life hurts and you're tempted to cry out to God, where are you? Why aren't you giving me what I expect you to give me? Never for one second entertain the thought that He's left you. See, God is using hardship to bring us to maturity, to grow us up in Him, to mold us into the people who will keep trusting Him and keep experiencing the salvation that He has given us. Where is God when it hurts? He's sitting at the potter's wheel, molding the piece of clay called Rowan, shaping me to be more like His Son, Jesus, that I would keep experiencing His salvation. Trust the God who has offered you salvation and endure hardships, not hardening your hearts, not grumbling, but being molded and shaped by the God who knows all. Well, we could stop here at this point. See two kind of helpful lessons from the book of Exodus and what it has to say about grumbling. uh, But we'd actually do exactly what we're talking about. We'd lose the focus and the depth of field of what this book is actually about. For there's another focal point for this whole passage. We've just seen, if you want, the, the gate in front of us, the fence. And what now I want to show you is that As we use the New Testament, which is also God's Word, Scripture, as we take that as a lens and look back over the book of Exodus, we see that the the New Testament shows us that there's something more going on here. If we were to walk away with just this view of Exodus, we actually have just a Jewish view, not a Christian one, that we would miss the main point of what this passage is about. That's right. The New Testament is going to say to you tonight that there is a greater point going on here than what just meets the eye. And we need to see through this passage to what it's actually talking about. That's what the New Testament does. It interprets the Old so we might understand what God wanted us to see and what the Old Testament was about. So let me show you a few things here that hopefully will bring into focus what is really going on. Number one, Israel and Jesus. What Israel failed to do in that they didn't obey God completely... They rebelled against God. They grumbled against God. They, they didn't do what he had said. What Israel failed to do, Jesus did. He is like the true Israel, the, the perfect Israel. When he's tempted for 40 days in the wilderness, when he is hungry, he is obedient, even to death. He obeys his father. He always does what his father says. He, Jesus fulfills the role of Israel. He is the true Israel, he's the true Israelite. So, as we see what Israel is supposed to be like here in Exodus, we would look through them and see the picture of Jesus, who obeyed perfectly. But we also see the focus shift between Moses and Jesus. In the next section in in Exodus uh, 17, it kind of goes on with this weird section about Israel getting attacked by the Amalekites. You're kind of like, whoa, they're suddenly drinking water, and the next thing... You know, there's this guy called Joshua who's standing there leading God's people into war against the Amalekites who are attacking them. You're like, whoa, where did this guy come from? What's he about? Now, when you know that the name Joshua means Savior and it's translated Jesus, you're like, well, that's interesting. But there's more going on here than that. As they get attacked by the Amalekites, we see that the whole episode of what is going on is controlled not by how well they fight, not by how well Joshua leads, but by where Moses' hands are. Moses is on top of a hill. And and every time his staff is in the air, the Israelites win. And every time his staff drops, his arms drop down, they start losing. And so after a while, they work this out and they go, right, Moses, you sit down on a rock and we'll get two people, we'll just hold your hands in the air the whole time. And so like, pin his hands in the air. Why is that going on? Why are we being told that at this point? God is saying, you complaining Israelites, to complain against my servant is to complain against me. Your salvation is dependent on my servant giving you my word and you listening to my word through my servant. Your life depends on Moses and what he is doing to lead you to me. Now at that point you see this great picture of how God works, but we also see another servant of the Lord that the New Testament fills us in on who bought salvation for the whole world by having his arms pinned high on a cross. A Saviour who died in our place, who was obedient, who was the perfect Israelite, and then died in our place on a cross so that we could be forgiven. How is it we could be forgiven? Only by His arms being pinned to that cross and Him dying in our place. See, Jesus offers a better salvation than Moses. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says that in Hebrews 3. Uh, Write it down, check it out later. Hebrews 3 is all about how Jesus is better than Moses. Moses is great. Jesus is better for He provides salvation for the whole world if you would just trust Him. Then we see the picture of what is this manna? How does that relate to Jesus? What's going on with with this bread? And remember, it literally means what is it? And I got me thinking, why is it that God commanded Israel to keep a jar of this bread? Even when they're kind of in the promised land and it's flowing with milk and honey, He commanded them to say, you've got to keep a jar of this bread that's going to keep for, into the future to remind you of me providing you in the desert. Why didn't, why didn't they keep a jar of quail? Maybe it was just because they didn't have good preservation techniques, they couldn't do that. What's the liquid you put like, dead things in in a jar? And they, you know, They pin them up, maybe they just didn't want to do that. But why is it that They were to preserve this thing called, what is it, (laughs) that God provided in the desert? Well, I think it's because God, number one, wanted us to remember that He provided for them in the desert, but number two, wanted us to think through how He would truly provide. Was He really talking about bread? Because as we turn to Jesus in John 6, we start to see the true meaning of what this bread was about. What is it? Look with me at John 6. And just to show you, here's the, here's the context of what happens. In John 6, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. 5,000 people. How did he feed them? A few loaves of bread. Bread? Whoa. What's the link here? People are amazed. Jesus could feed 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread, and there's 12 basketfuls left over. How does that work? Who is this guy? And so they're amazed. They follow him. They're like, man, this guy is like a vending machine of miracles. Poke him and awesome stuff comes out. I want to see more tricks. want to see more stuff. You know, Give us our food. They're excited. And so we join the story at John chapter 6, verse 30. It's on the screen. What sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you? They asked. What are you going to perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Wow, hang on. Our passage is suddenly in view and we've got Jesus talking about its meaning. Listen to what he says in, in verse 32. Jesus said to them, I assure you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the real bread from heaven. Now think about it. You all think, yeah, Jesus is God's son, right? You're all... Imagine some guy walked in, rocked up here tonight and said, you all think that, you know, God provides, every... that Moses or someone in your family provides you with everything that he'd provided in the past. Let me tell you, it's not just Moses my dad you're like okay who is who is this guy my father gives you the real bread from heaven now look at verse 35 if you thought that was arrogant you ready i am the bread of life jesus told them no one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again not only is he better than moses he is god's provision he's the bread of life Do you see what Jesus is saying? Exodus, God providing manna from heaven, providing a way for His people to be saved and supporting them and sustaining them, was all about Jesus. It wasn't about them, it was about who Jesus was and what He is doing. To focus just on them is to see the fence, it's not to see the bigger picture behind what's going on. If that's not enough to convince you, keep reading with me. Chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says, if you want life, if you want to live, if you want to enter my rest, the promised land, if you want to, you need to come to me. Everyone who sees the Son and trusts in Him may have eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day. Life forever is on offer. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the bread that came down from heaven. He's what the manna was pointing forward to. In Him our hunger is fulfilled forever. Our thirst is quenched. Life is found in Him. Their fathers, they ate manna in the desert but they all died. Jesus said, you eat eat me, you you trust in my death in your place, my body broken for you, then you will live forever. Jesus is the better bread. (laughs) Eat of this Jesus, be united to him and you will not die. For he is life and resurrection. There is no other way to experience life than the true Israelite who obeyed God's word and died in your place. Unless you depend on his death, you will die like the Israelites did in the desert. And what do you think they said? <laughs> the Pharisees, the teachers of the law that were there at the time as Jesus is talking, they've seen these miracles, they wanted sign. How do you think they responded to Jesus saying, I am here to give you life forever, God's generous provision. How do you reckon they responded? Look at verse 41. Therefore the Jews started complaining about him. Do you see it? It's just the pattern that we're used to. That here God provides and they, they, they complain even at God's provision. It's actually how Paul understands this whole thing too, in case you think I'm on some crazy kind of out there idea. Look at this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. What's he talking about? And All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and ate the same spiritual food. You're like, man, he's talking about Exodus and them getting out of the the promised land and them eating the same spiritual food, the, the manna, and look, and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Could it be any clearer? Exodus is about Jesus. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Paul says this is about him. But then listen to how he applies it. Listen to how he, he says what this is really going on about. Chapter 10, verse 6 of 1 Corinthians. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Let me read that again. These things in Exodus took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. In other words, what went on in Exodus was actually, sure, it had an application to them as examples then, but was actually for us. Look at verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. That's in Numbers, if you want to check it out. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. If you don't see that the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus, you've missed God's depth of field and focus and perspective. It's all pointing forward to Him. These things were an example for them, but written down as instructions for you and me. The whole law, the obedience of the Jews, the call to treat God as God, it was never accomplished by any Jew except one, Jesus. In Him, death is defeated, gone, lost its sting, finished. In Jesus is life that lasts forever. No more hunger or thirst, but eternal life. In Him is our sustenance, our daily bread. What's the point of this whole passage? I think it's this. It is an absolutely ridiculous notion that those who have been saved by God could ever grumble. say it again, it's an absolutely ridiculous notion that those who've been saved by God would ever grumble. Have you ever met a grumbling Christian? I say it that way because it's easier to kind of hear than, do you ever grumble as a Christian? If if you're a Christian here, maybe you want to apply it that way as well, but do you ever find yourself frustrated at God? Go, why is it, why are you doing this this way? What What are you doing here at this point? But why does this thing happen? I'm so frustrated. Why don't you heal me? Why don't you do these other things that I want you to do? Why don't I have a a wife, a husband, a job, a car, I don't know, a dog? Whatever it is, why haven't you done it? Right? I want you to notice. You know that frustration you had as you see the way that Israel respond? That frustration that they never look at the acts of God like some primary school twerp is actually you and me. How is it possible that people who have seen the power of God displayed for them at a cross, people who have seen that Jesus died in their place, that they no longer have to face the judgment of God for what they have done, that Jesus has taken it in themselves, in himself. How is it possible for people who understand that what has been offered to them, guaranteed is life forever, No more pain, or mourning, or crying, or sickness. For that old order is put away. How is it possible for people who have recognized that the one who died for them was the one who made them? How is it possible for those people who've seen Jesus die and rise for them, who've promised, who who has promised them heaven forever? How is it possible to turn on our God and and grumble about anything? (laughs) What right do we have when we've inherited the whole earth? Do you see how incredible it is to grumble toward God? Yet yeah, we laugh at the Hebrews, you fools. Three days is all it took you, and you've forgotten what He did for you—Red Sea. <laughs> Shame on me. How long does it take me? And I forget that Jesus died for me—a far, far greater salvation. Life forever has been offered, but I complain about the weather that stuff happens. The danger for the Christian here is this. We get confident in ourselves. We think we know what God has said throughout history and we understand that we're saved and so we just get on with life and we act competently. And We begin to take our eyes off Jesus and get frustrated at life and we just kind of move on. Yeah, I've been a Christian, I'm frustrated at this person or that thing or the way God's done this and before long we, we find ourselves beginning To grumble, we take our eyes off Jesus and want more. If you've been a Christian for a while, let me show you the warning of God's word tonight. You who stand tall as a Christian, be very, very careful. Because you are the ones who are likely to take your eyes off Jesus and take him for granted. To think, yeah, yeah, I know he died on the cross for me. But why is this happening now? Stand tall carefully don't blame god he will never tempt us beyond what we can bear he will always provide a way of escape recognize that in the times of hardship he's molding you and shaping you don't be so arrogant to question this god for it will end if it ended in death for the israelites it will be judgment and hell for us ask yourself at this point what are you like as a christian what are, you, what are you like? Are you, are you a kind of mature adult Christian? Now if Israel here were, were kind of primary school kind of whinging children, what are you like in your Christian faith right now, you who trust in Jesus? Are you kind of like that, that, that whinging kind of primary school kid? Oh, I don't like what's going on. Or are you a mature adult? who is able when life goes to custard to say, I know that you're molding me and shaping me and making me more like your son. I trust you. Lord, please change these circumstances, but I trust you. Are you like a child? Stand there going, but I want more meat. <laughs> give me what you say. Give me, give me all this stuff, God, I want from you. Or are you like a baby? So just crying out. "Just I, I need this stuff. You're all take, take, take. Have you lost your focus on what Jesus has done for you? Have you let the things of this life so get in front of you that you've missed what has happened? I tell you, at times, that's exactly me. At times, I just feel tired. I'm tired of things not working out how I want them to work out. I'm tired of expectations that I have of me and of others not being met. I'm tired of things not being as easy as I'd like or things going the way that I want. I'm tired of having to work hard in relationships with people and with my family and with Sarah. I'm tired of being tired. I'm only 35 and I'm tired. I'm just, I'm, it's so easy to complain and to cry out. How dare I? Jesus has provided his life for me. Paul says, if you trust in Jesus, you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. What's the antidote to tiredness and grumbling? Focusing on who Jesus is. If you are tired, look to the one who became tired for you. Who willingly held his hands high as they nailed his hands to that cross. So that you and I could be forgiven. If you're dissatisfied with how life is going... Focus on the riches that are found in Jesus that will be yours forever, that are yours now. You're you're called a child of God. You will inherit the universe. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ. You have been forgiven at the cross. You will have life forever with no mourning, no crying or pain. How can you say I'm dissatisfied when you look at what Jesus has given me? Or you're scared. You're scared of what will happen in life and how your life will turn out and whether it will be good enough. Look to the cross where death has been defeated, where death no longer has any victory over us and see what we have in him. When life is hard and we groan throughout it, we need to see what Jesus has accomplished for us, the hope he has held out for us. Friends, hear the warning tonight. There is salvation found only in Jesus. If you're here checking him out, thinking about what what life is about, it's about him. Come, keep coming along with us. Keep seeing what the Bible has to say about this historical figure called Jesus who died and rose again and is alive today and offers you life forever. If you're here today as a Christian, as someone who does trust in Jesus, then won't you focus your eyes on him and see all of life in that perspective through what he has done. Won't you put him at the center and realize how pathetic and infantile our grumblings are when we have been offered the world and then stand and point people to that king who has both saved us and is leading us to be his people forever. Let's pray. Father God,